podcast that dares to ask the question, what keeps you awake at night? Maybe it's the media reporting that sea levels are rising globally. Does your brain swirl with fears fueled by horror stories? When you hear that we're having among the worst flu season in a decade and it hasn't peaked yet. Because we all know how I feel about that. Then you've come to the right place. Things that keep me up at night. A brand new podcast for you kindred spirits out there who cope with real life horror with a top-notch sense of humor. Join us on this journey of education and commiseration as we try to scare the shit out of each other every Friday. From cults to pandemics to government conspiracies, we get elbow deep in the gritty stuff, laughing all the way down the rabbit hole. You can join the madness by tuning in anywhere you find podcasts and get updates on the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at TTK Me Up. You can also visit our website for future surprises and contact info at ttkmeup.com. But just a disclaimer. I don't want to be blamed if you cannot get to sleep tonight. Everybody, this is Daniel. This is Daniel, and this is Carla, and we're <laughs> a true crime podcast by Hoosiers for Hoosiers, or for anyone that doesn't know what a Hoosier is. Hello, hello. Hey. How is you? How does Carla feel? I feel all right. How much sleep time you get in? I went to bed at five a.m. last night. Thank you very much. You gotta fill you this morning. This morning, <laughs> fill up that sleep bank. Yeah, I'm doing all right actually. What'd you do? Oh my goodness, I spent the whole weekend in Bloomington for a friend's graduation. There was a shooting downtown at Circle Center Mall. What? When? Last night. At like Near the mall, not in it, near it. Well, right outside it. Yeah, and I went, I wonder where Carla is. Illinois and Maryland. Dang. I didn't know if you were downtown or not. A shooting, like they just shot like around? Oh no, I didn't know. It was an argument. Oh, that escalated. Seems like it should. But then I didn't proceed to check and find out really where you really were. Screw you, man! <laughs> I'm just like I don't <laughs> think she is. <laughs> no, I was I I was down in Bloomington. Well, there's your connection. Really, mm-hmm. dude. It rained the whole graduation ceremony. Oh, yours was outside. sunny. You graduated. Mm-hmm. It was nice. Mom threw up on the way down there. <laughs> That's what I, I was, was driving saying. like a madman. I was race car driving in them back roads. It so. was great. And mom's back there. <sighs> our, our daughter's asleep. <laughs> was that because you guys were running late? We have never been late to an event. Nah. Uh-huh. No, I don't. I don't know if we were running late. Really? I don't think so. I mean, we got a little lost it because there was so, construction. It lasts like an hour and a half, even if you walk in and out like half yeah. an hour late. And we had to park and walk, but we found you mm-hmm. before. No, no. So you're supposed to be there at seven as a student, mm-hmm. and I woke up. I slept on the couch upstairs, ironically, which was mom dad's couch, <laughs> and. Because Riley slept on the freaking floor in the she basement. She always does it. It's weird. <clears throat> so I was like, I can't do this. Like I, I just went upstairs and slept on this old janky couch mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's been through all of our college houses with us. Oh, 
Oh, Ooh, it's so bad. Black light. No, please. <clears throat> and then I woke up. It was like 830. I went downstairs and Kennedy's still in bed. You're like, are you graduating I was today? like, Kennedy, what time do you have to be there? She shot up immediately. was like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. We're like, Kennedy, it's fine. You've just, already, they'll give you your diploma. No I was like, what. it's fine. Just show up. <laughs> she was freaking out. But they only have you show up that early because you get your picture taken. So mm-hmm. she didn't get her picture taken. I don't think we bought mine. Nah, I don't remember seeing one. And then they just line you up so that you can sit with your school. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't do that anyway. I slept with the business school. Yeah, I'm gonna sit wherever I want, bitch. I'm gonna sit with my friends. Yeah, you can't stop me. Yeah, so she oh just walked in late. It was god. like at the very back. Oh my god! <laughs> so, so you partied? Yeah, it was really, really fun. What did we do this weekend? I can't say what we did this weekend. <laughs> Stop it. But we had a, a a real good Saturday night. We went and got McDonald's at like 1030. Yeah. And watched the last episode of The Act, which is about Gypsy Rose on Hulu. Did you guys caught up with Game of Thrones and shit? Yeah. <gasps> Wiener Wieners tonight. Two wieners. No, next like, to another. Next to one another, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I come to work and all people talk about. Is sex? What? What? Game of Thrones. <laughs> well, that is sex. I mean, mm-hmm. Ari, the Ari is sexy, and it made everyone really uncomfortable. I don't know. I see, and I already knew that because everyone at work talks about it. Yeah, and I'm I don't watch it. You should. I want to. I just you know at this point just wait till they all come out. Do it on my own time. Mm-hmm. So I find that very annoying. Oh, I'm so sorry. Maybe you should ask everybody to not talk about it out of respect for. You not seeing it yet? Mm-hmm. I I don't know, but they're like, "Are you ever gonna watch it, really?" Yeah, I'm like, "Oh my god, leave me alone!" Not that cool. We have another. You re- guys have different conversations than what we do. Oh yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> probably. <laughs> we have a a good review. I think there have been some negative ones, but they don't write words with them. It's just like one star, so I can't say anything about it. What? Hmm. Hmm? No, but this is from Lexi Wolf. Yes, is the title. Ooh. Your show makes me laugh so hard that I snort and get weird looks from coworkers at my rather quiet office. Please keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> I don't know That's what it is. That's good. And yeah. we will. Yeah, keep <laughs> doing it. I've never been in a quiet office like employment setting. Your office isn't necessarily quiet either, is no, it? No, always people screaming. And I always, I stand up sometimes and I'm like, I'm not okay. <laughs> it's <laughs> Yell fine. Yell out into the crowd. This is fine. <laughs> I'm not okay. <laughs> You're just shouting it into the abyss. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no one acknowledges <laughs> No you. one even looks up. No one notices my pain. I spent $40 to get into a bar. They didn't just let you in like ladies' night and I'm feeling right? No. No, no they didn't. They, they, knew, they knew how $40 old. $40 to get <clears throat> They knew how bar. old I was. Here's the thing. We're at sports, okay? Mm-hmm. If you listen to our Lauren Spear episode, you will yeah. know that's where she was last seen. No, was it sports or was the other one? It was sports. Kilroy Sports. Okay, oh, okay. I the know. first word. I wanted that I one. I know. I wanted the first word. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. But anyway, the front was $20 and the line was wrapped around the building. Mm. And the side was like 30 but it didn't get you upstairs or something like that. So we just went to the back. No line. $40. Wow. Yeah. Hate to wait. 
we were just like, I, he was literally giving the guy my money, and I was like, this is highway robbery. <laughs> He's like, you don't like it. He's like, well, then Kick go rocks. stand in line. No. This is, <laughs> this is free capital. Mm-hmm. You just got to know how much money they made last night. Like, uh, the drinks were expensive. We paid $40 to get in. They had to make so much money. I felt bad for the bartenders because people were screaming at them and being oh, yeah, stupid. But, up. like, they probably made so much money last mm-hmm. night. Yep. And they stayed open till 6 a.m. <gasps> Capitalism. I didn't know if you were allowed to. Do they have to stop serving they alcohol? They stopped serving alcohol at 3. And then they walked around. And if you did, if you still had your drink in your hand, they were like, Please chug that. Yeah, I was going to say, they start to take it from you. I'm like, no, I paid $8 for this beer. And they're like, if you don't take it right now, At I'm going to three, they it. do that? Yeah, because they and want you out. And then they're open until six? Yeah. yeah. How do they do that? I, they probably got a special permit okay. for graduation. Oh, okay. But what I'm saying is they're open till six, but they're kicking everyone out at three. No, they just stopped serving alcohol and they walked around the place and they were like, if you still had to drink, they're like, I need you to chug that or throw it away. Mm-hmm. So it just became a place to congregate after that. Yeah, well, they had music. It was still really fun. Then they passed mm-hmm. out Gatorades, and I thought that was really Gatorade. nice. Gatorade, oh, that is nice of them. And they're like, since we like purged you of all your financial supplies, I'm going to give you a shot of Gatorade. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what happened. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. And then we asked the Uber driver to take us to McDonald's, and he took us straight to Kennedy's house. And I was like, I see this is not McDonald's, sir. Sir. And he was like, heh. <laughs> He didn't think it was very funny. You're like, I need me some Sprite. I need Sprite. It tastes like summertime. <laughs> Sweet summertime. <laughs> so yeah, if anyone wants to donate to my bank account. <laughs> Our Patreon. Patreon.com yeah, backslash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's your homicide? Yeah, yeah, no. Don't give Carla any money. <laughs> <laughs> all, right, all right, all right, all right. All right, all right, all right. Okay, this is a, a book I, I typed out. It took hours and hours. I should have cut the grass instead of typed this all out. But I did. Yeah, because our backyard would, looks like white trash. Okay, but everyone else in the neighborhoods kind of looks like white trash too. Mm. It's not entirely true. A little, a some ones. of the other people have also let it go a day or two. It's because it's been raining so much you can't cut it. I exactly. But I should have done that instead of this. A lot of this came. Oh crap! What, uh, the Chicago Reader dot com and Murderpedia. All right. Yes. Should have gone to Murderpedia first, and I forgot. The tried and true, and stumbled on it later and went, ah, god damn it. Yep, that's my story. All right. So I think this first part is Chicago, but I didn't, it's it's just an intro. But we'll we'll wrap back around how I told the story instead of linear. It starts off at the end. All right. Almost end. Ooh. In a Roger Park alley on August twenty first, nineteen eighty four, Joe Bala, a building jan- janitor, made a horrible discovery. Bala. Joe arrived at his building at 6 a.m. intending to take out the garbage to the alley. As he approached his dumpster, however, he saw that they had been filled with gray hefty bags. Joe knew his tenants well. They used cheaper bags. (laughs) So he was immediately suspicious. And pissed that his his dumpster was full. It says, I was very pissed off a little bit. (laughs) <laughs> hey, I've been there before. You go to you need the the company dumpster and someone else has thrown their their other shit. Oh yeah. Yep, that make you mad real quick. When they were doing reconstruction on the house, the people would be like using the dumpster or in it digging through it. Be like, "It's in my fucking driveway. Get out of my dumpster." They say, "That's okay, yeah." Yeah? Mm-hmm. That's okay. <laughs> so Joe was a little pissed off. So I opened one up, ripped it open. 
I was very curious what the hell I'm throwing out since it's his dumpster. Yeah. Inside was a human leg. Oh, no. Why <laughs> me? Joe said to himself. Why do I have to see those things? Oh, <laughs> poor Joe. But it was thanks to Joe Bala that one of the most notorious figures in local criminal history was taken off the streets. Janitors from neighboring buildings had seen the man who threw the bags into the dumpster, and one of them led police to the apartment of... Daniel knows what we're talking about. Jimmy Neutron. <laughs> oh, Jimmy. you want me to say it? Yeah. Larry Idler. Is it Idler? I don't know. I'm going off. Your you brain. said he knew. I know who it is. Larry Eiler. You're close enough. Eiler. Larry Eiler. E-Y-L-E-R. Larry Eiler. Mm-hmm. It's close enough. <laughs> then 31. Dude a, looks like a lady, you know. Yeah, a house you know. painter who worked intermittently. A weightlifter who was fond of Marine Corps t-shirts, cropped ones cool. on men, though he never served in the military. A man of normal appearance who did not seem to have much of a plan for his future. He was pretty average looking. I mean, normal guy, I would say. Your standard Caucasian. He had a porno stash. Cool. Yes. In the 70s. Yeah, late 70s. No, sorry. Early 80s. Porno stash. In relatively short order, police discovered the leg in the hefty bag belonged to Danny Bridges, a 16-year-old sex worker from Uptown, which is in Chicago. Larry Eiler was a native of Crawfordsville, Indiana. There's a lot of places in this one, but I'm going to have her look up Crawfordsville. Oh, my God. Crawfordsville is like between Indianapolis and Lafayette. It's like probably, I don't know. It's an hour drive. I I was going to say, it's probably, yeah, it's probably an hour from central Indiana. Yeah. Okay. You go up 65. It's home of the beautiful Wabash College, an all-male institution. You've been there. I have. It's the worst night of my life. Oh, yeah. That's when the neighborhood <laughs> exploded that night. <laughs> yeah. Okay. He was born December 21st, 1952. He was- wait a second. So, so wait a second. So, it was an all-male coll- all college. Mm-hmm. So, that night, there was a hen in the rooster house. Instead sure. of a rooster in the hen house? <laughs> yeah. Uh, th- sure, yeah. <laughs> a couple hens, probably, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was the youngest of four one. children. He attended Catholic schools and had some difficulty at age 10. Yep, that explains a lot. Yep. Psychologist tests revealed normal well, intelligence. You two girls are so fucked up. Well, <laughs> the fucked upness was not free either. You fucked up for free. <laughs> exactly. We paid to get messed up. Yeah. I can read and write. Anyone can ask. He attended Catholic schools, as I just said. At age 10, psychologists tested revealed normal intelligence, extreme insecurity, and great fear of separation and abandonment. Oh, hey. How'd you get mine? (laughs) You're not that bad. The staff at the clinic noted that Eiler did not feel loved or secure in his relationship with his parents and that he felt he was damaged and a pawn controlled by others. Clinic staff came to believe that his home environment was unstable and chaotic, and they recommended that he be sent to live elsewhere. At age of, at the age of 12, he went to live at a Catholic boy's home, which I'm sure was much oh better. Oh, my Lord. And he was only there for five months. I don't know what happened there. Larry's home life could be considered highly dysfunctional, and that his care was often in the hands of relatives, babysitters, or older siblings, the oldest of being 10. He suffered developmental trauma by the abrupt and repeated intrusion into his life from multiple adult males dating his mother. Yikes. She divorced his biological father when he was two years old and then remarried when he was four. 
Her second divorce took place when he was five and a third marriage when he was seven. Her third divorce when he was 11 and a fourth marriage when he was 12, followed by a fourth divorce when he was about 17. (sighs) That is a lot. That is a lot. And I'm sure every one of those guys was a dick. And she probably dated other guys in between there, too. His family had a history of alcoholism, and he was a victim of physical and mental abuse by his biological father, as well as his three stepfathers. A psychologist noted it was one of the worst cases of child abuse he had seen in his 20 years of practice, but did not go into further detail. Larry said that one of his stepdads would hold his head under hot water as a form of punishment, which, I mean, that's bad. I mean, it's pretty bad, but so it didn't say. Perhaps because of his strange home life, Eiler failed to graduate from high school. He eventually got a GED certificate. Not long after leaving high school, he joined the monastery, but left after a brief time. I mean, but everyone's kind of done that. Oh, yeah. I had a stint in a monastery. Mm -hmm. Sporadic enrollment in college between 1974 and 78 left Eiler without a degree, and he finally moved to Chicago. Unknown to friends and relatives, Larry Eiler was a young man at war within himself, struggling to cope with homosexual tendencies, which simultaneously fascinated and repelled him. Like John Wayne Gacy and a host of others, he would learn to take his sex where he could find it forcefully and then eliminate the evidence of his shame. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Oh, yeah, this is a darker one, by the way. Yep, I, I know the feeling. Yes, he does. Shushu. Shushu. <laughs> Rosie Palms. <laughs> In 1978, Eiler came to the attention of Indiana police after he picked up an ex-Marine who was hitchhiking in Terre Haute. Eiler allegedly pulled an eight-inch butcher knife on the young man, drove him to a forest, handcuffed him, and stripped him of his pants. Eiler then shed his own clothes and began running a knife up and down his captive's body while mumbling something, which is horrifying. You can get a Wendy's for for four dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Includes a baconator, chicken nuggets, french fries, and a frosty. Carla, I'm sure you'll know some people when you get to hell. (laughs) I mean, it's horrifying. What would it seem? You said something. That's what came to mind. (laughs) Just mumbling things. It's okay. He he survives this. So he managed to get away, but didn't get far. He did get stabbed in the chest and Uh left at the scene. But then uh, he played dead, I think, which is a smart thing to do. And then... He called the police. I think he got help, went to a neighbor's house, you know, found a trailer, I think is what it was. The Marine survived, though his wound required 36 stitches to close. Police found Larry waiting in his pickup and arrested him, confiscated a sword, three knives, a whip, and a canister of tear gas. Jesus. Bond was initially set at 50000 reduced to ten on August 4th by a sympathetic judge, whereupon Eiler's friend posted the $1,000 for his release. Because it's only like 10%, right? He testified that Eiler's attorney paid him $2,500 for his trouble. In return, he signed a release and Larry was not prosecuted. He was charged $43 court fine. I mean, he was a hitchhiker. He probably didn't have any money. And it's like, we're going to prosecute him and you'll have to testify and you probably won't get anything out of it. Instead, Larry's attorney said, if I give you $2,500, will you go away? And he goes, yeah, probably. (laughs) So... So wait, did he actually sexually assault this guy? Yeah, it doesn't go into a whole lot of detail about the sexual. Well, and is like, is it consensual at the beginning? And then it turns non-consensual and then he tries to stab him, you know. And then 
Two mutilated bodies were found by Indiana police on December 28, 1982. The day's first victim, 23-year-old Stephen Agin, had left his mother's home in Terre Haute. He was found in a wooded area near Vermilion County. Agin had been slashed across the throat and stabbed repeatedly about the abdomen, leaving him disemboweled. Yikes. Yikes is right. Victim number two. Whenever you hear the 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 term disemboweled. Uh, it just, uh, it's really a visual. Like you can picture uh-huh. any horror scene you've ever filmed, you've seen, and it's like, oh. Uh. Yeah. We were watching the other night and they disemboweled the guy and they stuck it up by his head so he had to look like at a, it. Like a, yeah. What was that? It's on. It was the sequel to the first Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'll see you in it's hell. Something sir. with Jon Snow in it. Yeah. Oh, that guy. Lord Kit. Commander. Yeah. Kit Harrington. Nope. Came that made. Is that what his name is? Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. The next body found on the same day was John Roach, a 21 year old Indianapolis resident, stabbed to death in a frenzy before his body was dumped along Interstate Highway 70 in Putnam County. People love Highway 70. Yeah. There's a lot of places in this one. We can't look all of them up. Good. <laughs> Indianapolis is kind of in the middle. That's your point of reference. Both victims were sent to Bloomington Hospital. There you go. Bloomington. That is not the place you want to be sent to. They were examined by... You know you've been to that hospital? Oh, I have been to that hospital, but um, Riley and Bailey have done stuff there. Clinical Mm -hmm. something, yeah. Mm -hmm. Did I ever tell you the story about when I went to Bloomington Hospital? I don't know. I had to to get an ultrasound because I was was having issues with my Mm -hmm. lady parts. Um... But they were like, you have to drink like two liters of water before you come up. Cold water, yeah. So I was like, cool, I can do that. And I did it, and I already had pee, you know. Mm -hmm. So I went over there, I parked, I go inside, and the fire alarm is going off. Oh. And everyone's walking out, and I'm like, no. Bathroom. No, I have to pee. We got to do this thing before I pee. Oh, my gosh. It was such a mess, and like they were evacuating us, and finally they let us go back in, and then I still had to wait to get checked in and wait for the doctor. It no, was so horrible. I, I was just like, I have to be, don't go anywhere. <laughs> I would have bounced. <laughs> I would have. An angry, angry tear bounced. It was, it was Daniel's horrible. heard angry tears before. Yeah, well. Yeah. yeah. So have I. <laughs> okay, so they're already dead, so it's okay that they're at Bloomington Hospital. <laughs> they were examined by Dr. John Pless. The crimes, while not identical, were similar enough that Dr. Pless was moved to suspect a serial killer at large. He reported his suspicions to the Indiana State Police, who in turn dismissed him as an alarmist. Like, he's overreacting. Like, chill, doctor. You don't have to be the one to identify a serial killer. That's true. In the spring and summer of 1983, more bodies turned up in Lake County, Illinois. 19-year-old Stephen Crockett stabbed to death and discarded in a cornfield 40 miles south of Chicago and 15 miles east of Indiana State Line. The next, although unrecognized as such for nearly seven months, was 25-year-old John R. Johnson. Missing for two months, he was found near Lowell, Indiana on Christmas Day. The killer's next victim may have been 22-year-old David Block, a recent Yale graduate who had vanished on December 30, 1982. By the time Block's skeletal remains were found near Zionsville, Illinois, on May 7, 1984, advanced decomposition and exposure to the elements ruled out definitive pronouncement of cause of death. There's a lot of dates and places and names. Yeah. But it was... I mean, so how many is that altogether? I don't know yet. And I, I'm not even sure if I got everyone, like, listed all of his victims. 
interesting. Because it's so, and people didn't know, you don't know for sure. And some were unidentified. And, and I tried to put them in order. So if it's not perfect, it's because I'm not perfect. <laughs> By <laughs> any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> By any standard. The, okay, they labeled this the highway murders or the highway killer. Okay, but what about Herb? See, yes, you're on it. Carl is with it. it. I'm, I think. He was the I-70 killer. Yeah. And, but some people say he even wasn't that. I've had, but I think he was. And so, yeah, Herb is overlapping at the same time, but he's a strangler and Larry is a stabber. He's a Scranton strangler. Mm hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I think they were overlapping, weren't they? Did I, I didn't even look up Herb. Mm hmm. So, yeah, a lot of gay men bodies turning up. Jesus. Yeah. By any standard, the highway murders cause was an investigation nightmare. A brutal killer roaming at will across the American Midwest targeting male sex workers and hitchhikers, hacking them to death and discarding their mutilated bodies in rural locations, sometimes buried in clusters. At least 10 victims were killed before members of various law enforcement agencies realized their separate cases involved a single predator. Police in Illinois and Indiana had no reason to suspect the crimes were related, and since the FBI's National Center for Analysis of Violent Crime would not be computerizing records of unsolved murders until June of 1984. So they can't, like, Google that shit or look into their, there's no database. It's all paper. Same thing with, like, problems with Ted Bundy. Like, you know, they can't communicate because they don't know. No, I haven't watched it yet. Incredibly wicked, extremely close, and personally violent. I don't know the title. <laughs> which really makes me think of extremely loud and incredibly close. Mm, which yeah. is like, isn't that a movie about nine eleven? Yeah. Huh? Huh? Yeah. Is it? I don't know. I'll, I'll uh, fact check. You're myself. thinking of Alexander and the No Good, Terrible, Very Bad Day. <laughs> no. Terrible, horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. <laughs> what the fuck ever? <laughs> I have to read that book frequently. Um, yes, extremely loud and incredibly close is a movie about nine eleven. Okay. Huh. The title of that movie, though, the one with Zac Efron, is because the judge says it to Ted Bundy okay, okay, during okay, okay, So okay. that's where they get Extremely it from. Extremely wicked, Wick- yeah. shockingly mm-hmm. evil, and vile. Yeah. Damn. But then he like chuckles and is like, it's too bad. I would have liked to have you on my team. It's like, fuck you, dude. Yeah, what you the know? hell? Murdered a little girl, amongst others. So yeah, he's like good old buddy in them. But he's like, but you're really bad, okay? Anyways, members of the Chicago and Indianapolis gay communities already recognize what police were loathed to admit that a serial killer of gays was at large and trolling more victims across the Midwest. The crimes revived ugly memories of John Wayne Gacy, then on death row at Menard, Illinois. But Gacy had concealed his victims while the highway killer seemed to flaunt his crimes. So there's a different... But we were talking about this. How many killers after gay men? There was a... It seemed the the more prolific ones... Or there's there's more you can mention. Obviously, mm-hmm. this guy, Herb Baumeister, Gacy, Dahmer. I'm sure there's more. But anyways, it just so there's a lot more of the. Uh, but the thing is, if these guys were straight, would they just be after women instead? I mean, they just happen to be gay and fucked up. Cleared that up. <laughs> the next verified highway victim was 27 year old Edgar Under Colfuller. Found stabbed to death outside Danville, Illinois, on March 4th, 1983. Jay Reynolds was the next to die, 26-year-old from Lexington, Kentucky. His mutilated corpse was found the next day, discarded along U.S. Highway 25 in rural Fayette County, south of town. So that was Kentucky. We're in, we've been in Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky so far. 
April was 28-year-old Gustavo Herrera found by construction workers in Lake County, Illinois, near the Wisconsin border. Aside from multiple stab wounds, his killer had cut off Herrera's right hand and removed it from the scene, where he was later found on April 8, 1983. Another victim surfaced in Lake County one week later on April 15th. The youngest killed to date was 16-year-old Everin Gibson, found outside Lake Forest. So he likes Lake Forest, I think. Yeah, like dumping grounds and hunting grounds. It's, uh, I think it forms a triangle, but I have to find a map. Oh, it's like the Bermuda Triangle. Mm. The Slayer's first black victim, 18-year-old Jimmy T. Roberts, was found in Cook County, Illinois, near the Indiana border on May 9th, 1983. There's been a lot of bodies turned up at the Illinois-Indiana border up in, by Chicago. Yeah. I mean, because it's like Chicago, they dump bodies there. But also you've got, if you have highway killers, man. Uh, Chicago native Roberts had been stabbed more than 30 times, after which the killer pulled his pants down and rolled his body into a creek. The water had removed any signs of sexual assault. Something else that happened is the the bodies were found with different socks on, tube socks that were not their socks. Why he do that? I don't know. And I don't think I ever figured it out that you would find that family would come to identify the bodies and be like, they didn't wear socks. Like if you were, your body was found in like tall white tube socks, I'd be like, he don't own any of those. So... It would be really weird. If they had found one on my PP. Yeah. You said, up. Oh, yep, that's the tube yeah. sock. Oh, that's yeah. Gina. The tube Gina. sock. Gina. That's the tube sock. Does it have googly eyes on it? Yep, yep that's, that's her. Gina. The inside real crusty. <laughs> Ew, all right. Uh, so I don't know if it was a fucked up serial killer thing, switching out socks. I don't know if he kept socks as trophies. I don't know, but it was just really weird. The water, and who knows, DNA wasn't as big either in the early 1980s. The case changed forever when another victim was discovered on May 9th, 1983, in a, discovered in a field beside Indiana State Road 39 in Henderson County. 21-year-old Daniel McNeve was a sometime street hustler from Indianapolis. He had been stabbed 27 times, one of the abdominal gashes leaving his entrails exposed. The corpse was sent to... Bloomington Hospital. Bloomington. And Dr. John Pless once again saw marks of a familiar handiwork. And disturbed, he reached out to the state police again. And this time they went, yeah, probably looks like a serial killer, doctor. And he's like, fucking told you. Trapped in this morgue all goddamn day. And I know what's up. Six days after McNeve's course was discovered, members of several Indiana law enforcement agencies gathered to discuss the highway murders. They organized a task force formerly christened as the Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigative Team. Trademark. Yeah. Patent pending. It was 50 officers from eight jurisdictions gathered to review a score of unsolved murders all involving young men or teenage boys who were stabbed or strangled to death. See, there's this, like, strangled to death, so it was probably Herb. Their bodies dumped along highways throughout the state. By the time of the second meeting, the task force already had a prime suspect on tap. A phone call from Indianapolis naming 31-year-old Larry Eiler as the highway killer. I think this was the Marine that got away that got paid 2500 bucks to stay silent. Called in. Like, they formed a tip line and everything. He's like, that's the motherfucker that stabbed me. Ooh. You know. Near midnight on August 30th, 1983, 28-year-old Ralph Carlisle left the apartment he shared with his girlfriend in Chicago suburb of Oak Park, Illinois, near Uptown. Tire tracks and footprints at the scene offered police their first real traces of the killer who had claimed at least a dozen lives. Yikes. So they didn't have any evidence. Like, you know, you have a disemboweled body that's been mutilated, but no other evidence, especially mm -hmm. for the time period. So, but now, I think they're going to end up with 
foot tracks and tire like mold castings. On September 30th, 1983, an Indiana State policeman noticed two men leaving a ditch and returning to a gray pickup truck parked by the side of Interstate 65 headed toward Indianapolis. So this trooper just happened to be driving by. I was like, the fuck is going on? Because he's like, I feel like one of those men looks tied up and being walked. (laughs) And that's not normal. Sir? Sir, is this consensual? One of the men was Eiler and the other was Daryl Hayward, hitchhiker whom Eiler had solicited for sex. Eiler convinced his date to leave the truck and hike across a nearby field to have sex in an abandoned barn. Both were taken. <laughs> I mean, at least they're not That's out in the open. bad. <laughs> it's abandoned. There's no animals. At least they're not out in the open. I don't know. Both were taken to an uh, office at the police station. Eiler was questioned and held for 12 hours and released without being charged. Remember this, being held without being charged for 12 hours. Much evidence was gathered as a result of the arrest. A bloody knife was found in Eiler's truck. Laboratory tests later revealed that the enzymes in the blood matched those of Ralph Carlisle, whose body had been found four weeks earlier in Lake Forest, Illinois. The soles of the boots Eiler was wearing matched plaster casts taken of footprints at the site where Carlisle's body had been found. Plaster casts of tire trucks at the same site matched the tires on Eiler's pickup truck. This is looking good. Nah, it's looking good. I mean, that's pretty solid shit. They were unable to detain him any longer, and the Illinois State Police failed to collect Eiler, so he was released. I don't really understand this. I don't understand why they, he wasn't just fucking arrested. I don't know if it took a while to get those results back, and during that time, they had to let him go because we can't charge you with anything, and we've and technically held you maybe a little too long. You know, that type of mm-hmm. thing. Two mushroom hunters found a man's dismembered torso in a plastic trash bag discarded near Highway 31 at Petrified Springs Park in Kenosha County, Wisconsin. So now we're into Wisconsin. Mushroom hunters. Mushroom hunters live a dangerous life. Especially when they find petrified things. Like using, on Law and Order SVU, it's always a jogger that finds the bodies. It should be mushroom hunters. Yeah. Oh, very, very true. What's growing out of this pile of shit? Oh, that's a body. Body. Damn it, fourth one this month. Oh, no, wait, wrong kind of mushrooms. <laughs> An autopsy revealed that the head, arms, and legs had been severed with a fine tooth saw and that the torso had been drained of blood. Boo. Boo. What? Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, was he a vampire? I don't know how you drain a body of blood besides just stringing it up. Like, I don't know how you do that. Although the severed parts were f- Pull never. the drain plug. Mm, interesting. Although the severed parts were never found, x-rays identified the victim as 18-year-old Eric Hansen, a street hustler from St. Francis, Wisconsin. And when I say street hustler, I don't know if that is code for sex worker. This article was written in, like, the 1990s. So, and the grim discoveries continued. On October 15th, a farmer's plow turned up skeletal remains of a John Doe victim in Jasper County, Indiana, southwest of Rensselaer. The bones were notched by knife wounds, indicating death by stabbing. Four days later, mushroom hunters stumbled upon Highway Killer's private graveyard. I do believe this is two incidents of different mushroom hunters, but it could be the same one. Like I said, God damn it, fourth one this month. Trying to find my shrooms. They have bad luck or good luck? I'm not sure what that is. A long abandoned farm outside Lake Village, Indiana. I've been there. It's like a two-stop light town. 
Okay. A long-abandoned farm outside Lake Village, Indiana, four more victims were discovered in varying states of decomposition. Two of the victims would remain forever nameless, and the others were identified as 22-year-old Michael Bauer and 19-year-old John Bartlett. On November 1st, 1983, Eiler was charged with Carlisle's murder. It looked like a very strong case, but the Indiana State Police had incarcerated Eiler for 12 hours without charging him with a crime. A fairly clear... Despite the fact that we found a bloody knife. Yeah, a very clear constitutional violation. Lake County Circuit Court Judge William Block ruled that Eiler had been illegally detained and that the evidence gathered as a result of that detention would not be used against him. Everything. That is everything. All because they held him a little too long. They probably didn't let him go pee or offer him a Sprite. That was probably what it was. <laughs> Sprites will cover over a multitude of sins. Mm -hmm. They should keep hard candy in there. Yeah. I don't know. Butterscotch candy. Butterscotch candy. <laughs> With the ruling, the case collapsed and Eiler was once again out on the streets. Fearing harassment by police in Indiana, he immediately left for Chicago. Chicago. At that point, he was suspected in 23 murders. His story had been covered by newspaper, radio, and television reporters in both Indiana and Illinois. He was notorious among policemen and within the gay community. So notorious that boy sex worker Danny Bridges was warned to stay away from him both by police and by a probation officer. That made it all the more surprising when Bridges turned up as a victim, as victim number 24. There is no doubt about it that Danny Bridges knew Eiler, both by reputation and by face. So, like, why would you get in the truck with... Someone you know is killing all your. He's not gonna. It's hurt very me. convincing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, sociopaths are like that. They're charming. I know, and then everyone always thinks it's not gonna happen to me. Yeah, I mean, he's young too. Fingerprints lifted from the trash bags matched Eilers, and he was formally charged with first-degree murder at 8 p.m. Evidence found in his apartment included numerous bloodstains, a box of trash bags matching those from the alley, a hacksaw, and a T-shirt owned by Danny Bridges. Coincidence. It's been planted. The proceedings opened in Cook County Criminal Court on July 1st, 1986, before Judge Joseph Urso. Jurors convicted Eiler of all counts on July 9th, but his fate would be decided in the trial's penalty phase, beginning on September 30th, three years to the day since he was stopped by a trooper in Lake County, Indiana. So it wasn't hard to find him guilty of that. I mean, there was just so much evidence. Yeah. On October 3rd, 1986, Judge Urso sentenced Larry Eiler to die for killing Bridges. Eiler was also sentenced to 15 years in prison for aggravated kidnapping and five years for attempting to conceal his victim's death. So after he dies, he has to serve another 20 years. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah. He will, too. I like when they when you get sentenced to like three consecutive life sentences and it's like, so like if they weren't consecutive, if you died. You get income back to, just in case back. if necromancy is ever a thing, you still have to serve your prison sentence. I guess it's if it, one of the death or life terms gets overturned, then you still have two other ones, I guess. Yeah. She's now representing Stephen Avery in Wisconsin. Kathleen Zellner. Kathleen Zellner. Very impressive. The Kath or Kathleen? I have Kathleen. Okay, that's probably right. Up in her, with her Gucci and Prada walking through the white trashness of... Manitowoc. Manitowoc it's a nice County. Place. It's nice, all right? No, she's all about it, freeing wrongly convicted people and she does not represent anyone that is guilty so wow. and that is because of this case so i'll get into it right now kathleen zellner eiler's appeals attorney came forward in december of 1990 and offered to make a deal 
She was asked to take the case by the Capital Resource Center, a branch of Illinois' Appellate Defender's Office that specializes in defending indigent clients in death penalty cases. So you're a poor individual that got sentenced to death. So and you're you get an automatic appeal after the death penalty anyways. Surprisingly, he was not asking for some hope of distant freedom. He wanted to be taken off death row and be given a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. So he's like, I have information. I'm not asking to get out. I just fucking hate death row. In exchange for that, Zellner let it be known that her client would provide information that would solve more than 20 murders in nine counties in Illinois and Indiana and more than half of them involving at least two perpetrators. What? Two? Wait. It, it sounds like a good deal, in my opinion. State's attorney Jack O'Malley could keep Eiler in jail for the rest of his life, solve more than 20 old murders, help bring to justice a killer or killers still on the loose, and save taxpayers hundreds of thousands of dollars in appeal costs. Or he could see Larry Eiler eventually wind up a free man after Zellner overturned his death penalty conviction on appeal. So she knows that she can get this case overturned. Instead, they're like, hey... He'll give you all this information. You can clear up a lot of issues with families that lost loved ones as long as you don't put a needle in his arm. What do you think he does? A needle in his own arm? (laughs) O'Malley had been Cook County State Attorney for only a week. We put him on death row. Nobody else did. We're not walking away from that. O'Malley called a press conference denouncing the proposal and called Eiler a butcher. So instead of like saying, yeah, we'll do this and solve murders... Now, I don't know what the families would have said that like, yes, give us the information or no, give him the death because they asked uh, Ted Bundy victims. And they said, fry him. Fry the fucker. On December 13th, Eiler was escorted to Clinton, Indiana. On arrival, he pled guilty to the Argon murder and agreed to testify against Professor Robert Little at trial. Eiler's statements to Judge Don Darnell included the claim that on August 19th, 1982, Little asked him... Did he want to play a scene? Allegedly, their code for staged homosexual acts climaxed by murder. Hmm. They picked up Egan together, Eiler said, and drove him to an abandoned farm building off Route 63 where he was bound, suspended from rafters, and stabbed to death. Dr. Robert David Little, 53, was short, portly, white-haired former chairman of the School of Library of Science at Indiana State University in Terre Haute. Little has had a distinguished career as a librarian. Yes. Eiler was briefly enrolled at Indiana State University in 1975. Eiler has testified that he moved into Little's house not long after their meeting, and Little began supporting him financially, and that financial relationship continued for approximately seven years. In February of 1984, after Judge Block ruled that the evidence in the Carlisle case was tainted, Eiler was released from jail on 10,000 bond. Who do we think paid his bond? Uh, Her Baumeister. The librarian. Oh. Herb Baumeister. This is, so this is his, you know, he says this is my accomplice in murder, my lover, and also my sugar daddy. And he, pay, and he paid for me to get out of jail. And Dr. Little helped him get an apartment in Rogers Park. Little co-signed the lease application, paid the security deposit and the rent, and bought Eiler a bed and a TV. It was, in, it was in that apartment that Danny Bridges would later be killed and carved up. So it's like... He, he's connected to this. He owns that apartment. He's renting that apartment in his name where his boyfriend got convicted of that kid's death. Ew. Does that make sense? The doctor's boyfriend is Larry Eiler, and mm-hmm. he pays for all the things that Larry does. Well, Larry is convicted for killing Danny Bridges in that apartment. Ew. 
just doesn't seem necessary. Eiler has portrayed it as a two-way relationship, saying that in return for financial support, he functioned as a lead man for Little, who, because of his appearance, needed help attracting sexual partners. He was too ugly to get to get any. He was unattractive. So Eiler's attorney, his last name is Shippers. I think I lost where this first name was. During the trial, tried to undermine Little's testimony of his whereabouts the morning after the murder. Little had claimed that he had paid his property taxes earlier because he had the money and simply decided he would pay off some bills. So Larry's saying, this motherfucker did that, not me. And you can see how all the circumstantial evidence kind of lines up that he could have. But Dr. Little is going, I went to pay my property tax bills that day. <laughs> er, extra early and for no reason, like three months in advance. And they're like, okay, so that's, you know. Okay. Without say, ever saying it straightforward manner that Dr. Little had committed the murder, Shippers tried to raise the thought in jurors' minds. In his closing argument, he pointed out that blood was found in the bedroom and that it was Little who had been sleeping in the apartment bedroom that weekend. Shippers went on to say that Little's payment of his tax bill was an example of someone who was building an alibi. So, like, in his alibi, I was like, yeah, I passed by the 10-something train on my way there and back, and it's like, that train goes every day. Like, you can't just say, like, you no, know, trying to get... That. Yeah, like, I, on my way, I saw this woman get hit by a car and something, something, and you could check the news reports because the woman got hit by a car. That doesn't happen every day in the same spot, but he's saying, yeah, that train goes by. I saw it on my way to pay my tax, but that's how I know where I was at what time. And I was like, that's, you could just say that. Yeah, so he was building an alibi. But he's a doctor. Not a very good one. He's a doctor of books. He could have said he was he's checking a... someone's prostate. Mm-hmm. Right. What? So there's he's a learned doctor. Oh, he's not that kind of, of doctor. Books. Of books. <laughs> this is a house of learned doctors. <laughs> They're running with this. Larry Eiler's story, a convicted murderer. They're going to say, I like how you're talking here. We can press charges against your doctor friend. Cool. Uh, let's do it. Jury selection for the professor's trial began at Newport, Indiana on April 9th, 1991. Prosecutor Mark Greenwell was matched against defense attorneys Dennis Zahn and James Royals. Oops. Oops. It's all over for him now. Yeah. Yeah, that's who you hire if you're guilty and you want to get off. It rested entirely, as Greenwell admitted, on the testimony of convicted killer Larry Eiler. Without his statement, we don't have a case at all. So I just don't... like. It seems odd that you would take a case to trial solely on statements. Like, yeah, he was there because I say so. And you could see how he could be because, you know, he, yeah. he owned the apartment or he bought me a TV. Eiler was the state's first witness on April 11th, repeating his tale of murder inspired and directed by Little. Eiler claimed that Little joined in stabbing Egan, then masturbated while Eiler finished the job. When he was done, Eiler, huh. Eiler said Little had lowered his camera and complained that it went too fast. Mm. A new twist was added. <laughs> what? I'm scared. A new twist was added when Eiler claimed that Little, not him, had murdered Danny Bridges in Chicago. So he's on death row for murdering Danny, but he is passing. Eiler's passing out deals. Sixty, you give me sixty years, I'll tell you where the bodies are. And it was only one county that one prosecutor that had been for, you know, a week or two. It was like, we don't want your deal. Other counties like Vermilion wanted that deal. So you're at trial. But he says, I'm not the only one who did this shit. Dr. Little over here helped me. And so they're like, okay, we've got you. You're going to get 60 extra years on top of your death penalty and pleading guilty and testify against him. 
This is a very complicated. I know it's so, case. so long, but are we following it? Do you follow? Do you follow it? Okay. Do you follow? Do, do you follow? The defense case was simple: branding Eiler a liar and presenting an alibi that placed Little hundreds of miles from the crime scene. His mother testified that Little never missed a Christmas visit to Tampa between 1958 and 1990. So she's saying he was in Florida, but his Pontiac was getting worked on in Indiana. It's like, so did he? And so a mechanic is like, no, he was here dropping off his car. Damn, I'm confused. Oh, man. man. Oh, man. So much happening. It's I'll clarify real quick. Little declined to testify, putting his trust in the jury and his faith was rewarded. He with an acquittal on April 17, 1991. So they tried to take Larry Eiler's accomplice and lover to trial, and he did not get convicted of killing one of his many victims. Does that make sense now? Yes. So then we appeal our murder convictions. When Eiler first appealed his conviction, his appellate attorney minced no words in arguing that Dr. Little had killed Bridges. Zellner also met with Eiler's trial attorney, David Shippers. His first name was David. As a result of that meeting, she says she came to the belief that the state's attorney might have withheld documents that could have been beneficial to Eiler's defense. So she is a boss bitch and she's here to get shit done. <laughs> she is. When Zellner gained access to evidence taken from Little's house in a raid, among the boxes carted off by police were some containing financial records, and among those records were invoices from David Shippers, Eiler's attorney, to the professor. What? Zellner had always assumed that Eiler's mother and stepfather had paid for his legal counsel. So the person who paid to bail Eiler out of jail is also paying his defense. The defense is saying the professor committed the crime. Does that make sense? I'll keep going. Do <laughs> 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 you see why this took me all day? Yeah. It just kept going. Armed with invoices taken in the raid and canceled checks found later, she began to argue that Dr. Little was in fact paying a substantial portion of Eiler's bills, his attorney bills, you know. On the face of it, it seemed incredible. The lawyer of the accused being paid by the prosecution's lead witness. Hmm. Shippers was being paid by the man. (laughs) Shippers was being paid by the man he was suggesting was the real killer of Danny Bridges. (laughs) Do you understand? You don't understand? Why would they do that? I don't know. And he's like, I'm going to pay you to represent my boyfriend, even though you're saying I committed this crime. And the defense attorney's like, sure, okay. But th- that, that creates- seem like a conflict of interest. That's yeah. my point. Exactly. Uh, the checks and invoices seem to even more incredible in the light of a passage Jellner found in the case's transcript. Shippers told Judge Urso that he was not being paid a nickel for his work on the Bridges case and that he would inform the court if the situation changed. So he's like, I'm doing this pro bono. That's how nice of a guy I am, getting paid by this guy's boyfriend on the side. Everything's <laughs> on the side. As a result of Shipper's claim, Urso allowed two public defenders to be retained as part of Eiler's defense team. When Zellner reflected upon Shipper's cross-examination of Dr. Little, she found it lame. So he went easy on the guy that's paying him to do this job, you know, and you're going well, easy on you. Yeah. Shippers had failed to ask, for example, if Little was gay or if he had had any sexual interaction with male teenagers. So they didn't even ask this guy, like, are you gay? Little's testimony was crucial because it put Eiler alone in the apartment around the time that Danny Bridges disappeared. 
If he had, Little might have come across as more likely a suspect in causing Bridges' death, creating reasonable doubt. But he went Very easy. reasonable. He went easy on him because he's given him money. Zellner concluded that Shippers made his most egregious error after the jury came back with a guilty verdict. At that point, many lawyers produced psychiatric testimony to show that the accused was psychologically deficient in some way and therefore undeserving of the death penalty. Eiler had a clinical record as a disturbed child and a documented record of having been so abused that authorities thought he should be removed from the home. Shippers had access to that information, Zellner argues, but presented none of it. So this is she's his defense, and even though she doesn't really like him, she's trying to get an appeal. And that that one attorney in Illinois is like, no, we gave him the death penalty. We're the only state that could do it. We're going to stand firm. And she's like, I'm about to overturn this conviction, sir. You should have taken this deal. He goes, yeah, old woman, what do you know? I'm, I'm making that up. I'm sorry. <laughs> His apparent acceptance of payments from the prosecution's lead witness is a mystery. The question will remain, would an attorney unburdened by a financial relationship have, a, have done better? Eiler had a different attorney who wasn't being paid by his the lead prosecution's witness. Would he have done a better job? That just does sound like a... Yeah, like, can, why would we even go forward with this? Yeah. Zellner argues that the case law is very clear and that a conflict of interest of this magnitude will, without a question, result in a new trial. If Judge Urso doesn't order it, she says, the state Supreme Court or the federal appeals court will. It may be that state's attorney O'Malley recognized this possibility when he was offered the original deal, but felt that if Eiler won a second trial, the state would convict him a second time and put him back on death row. That's that one guy that refused to take the deal. Moreover, in 1983, the FBI had produced an uncanny profile based on its investigation of the three Indiana cases. The profile speculated that there were two killers involved. One was supposedly to be fairly intelligent, middle-aged, middle-class, overweight, with a solid job, outwardly normal, and likely be married, but for only appearances. A profile that fit the the professor, Dr. Little, but for the fact that he was not married. The other killer was believed to be in his late 20s or early 30s, a laborer who looked like a tough guy, a man with a strong upper body, a beer drinker who drove a pickup truck. Me. Where was I in the mid-1980s? In the cosmos. In the cosmos. (laughs) It seemed likely that the Chicago police had seen that profile, details of which were published in Indiana newspaper. So, like, the FBI came in and said, let's, I'm going to help you. This, This is who you're looking for, two people. But they still didn't convict Little, even though they're like, he fits the profile. Yet, in the Chicago documents turned over to Zellner, there is no indication that anyone had given Little a second thought. Because he comes off as normal. Like, he didn't do this. Did we not learn anything from Ted Bundy? No. Fingerprint experts who had failed to find any indication that Bridges had been in Eiler's truck do not seem to have been asked to check Dr. Little's Trans Am. No one seems to have asked the professor for hair, blood, or fingernail samples, and there is no indication that a lie detector test was called for. Police seem to have taken Little's property tax alibi at face value. While Zellner was able to discover with relatively little effort that the professor had no previous history of paying his property taxes early. She's like, bitch, what the fuck? She also points out- He read it in Reader's Digest. Yeah. (laughs) She also points out that Little could have left Chicago by 7 a.m. on that Monday morning with Bridges already dissected and still have made it back to Terre Haute with plenty of time to pay his property tax by noon. So it's still more reasonable doubt that he could have been the one to kill Danny Bridges. Even I mean, Eiler still killed a lot of other people, but... 
Yeah, we're not so talking about that one. We're just talking about this one specific case, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's kind of like when you're arguing with somebody and they bring up something that happened in the past. Can't help it if I have a better memory of arguments than you do. <laughs> <laughs> Only of arguments. The Illinois Supreme Court specifically cited Bridges' lack. Okay, so um, you have to have aggravating factors to get the death penalty. And he isn't being charged with multiple murders. It's just this one boy. And one of the aggravating factors was like abduction and probably restraint, like being held ca- being held mm-hmm. against your will. But the Illinois Supreme Court specifically cited Bridges' lack of history of bondage as a key factor in upholding Eiler's kidnapping conviction. The issue is crucial because without the kidnapping conviction, Eiler is not subject to the death penalty. So if she can prove that he liked to get tied up by other clients, then it doesn't necessarily show that he was abducted and can get rid of the mitigating factor. She's just really smart. She's come up with a lot of stuff. And Danny Bridges was working for the police was another thing that she thinks that they were trying to cover up because the police were using him as bait, probably as like an informant. But you have to you're 16, a criminal informant. And I sent you off. He was the master bait. (laughs) I sent you off and you got killed while you were doing like reconnaissance work to catch pedophiles i guess would be so that was one would theory that be like if someone got killed doing to catch a predator yeah hello i'm chris <laughs> oh man so i think that was part of it is that the police didn't want yeah to be investigated any further because they might have been a little guilty in some of it and so that would be the theory they never found any dna in the truck and why would danny bridges dinner 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 why would he get in a truck with someone who knows kills people their theory is that he got in Little's Any Trans Any relation Am. to Jeff Bridges? No. Yeah. Darn <laughs> No, they think that Danny got in the car with the professor, and that's how they ended up at the apartment. Because he would have known not to get in the truck with Eiler. So yeah, this because is a someone, bunch of people told him not to. Yeah. And he had been around the sex scene for a while, so I think he probably, he wasn't like, which is sad, but he didn't start doing this yesterday. He knew what was up. So, prosecutor Mark... Zuckerberg. (laughs) Rakugzi. Oh, just go ahead. Prosecutor Mark, now in private practice, says that he is not certain that he reviewed every case in which Bridges had been a witness. There were no computers back then that he could just type in Danny Bridges and have a list of cases appear on screen. He was also not certain that the cases he did review were turned over to shippers. He hastened to add that in the cases he examined, he could see no connection to the Eiler case. The law, however, the law does not give a prosecutor discretion in determining whether a document is relevant. What a prosecutor thinks is extraneous might prove to be crucial to the defense. So that's her other form of appeal is saying the prosecution said, dude, I looked at it. it there's it didn't it's no good for you. So I just shredded it. <laughs> it didn't even have Eiler's name on it. So why would it matter? And they're like, I need that shit. <laughs> I'm like, I'll email it to you. Oh, wait, there's no email yet. (laughs) We get the glue out, start gluing those shreddings back together. On April 15th, a judge ruled against the state, deciding that Zellner's arguments in Eiler's behalf had enough merit to hold an evidentiary hearing this summer. In Illinois' death penalty cases, about four out of five such post-conviction petitions fail to get this far. So she's like making it happen. That never gets this far. You don't get it. And she's found so many things that were bullshit in his case. And she's like, I am here for you. I hate you. I'm going to do my job. (laughs) 
All the evidence is in. Judge Urso will decide whether Eiler's defense was compromised. If he decides it was, Eiler will get a new trial. If he decides it wasn't, Zellner will take the case back to the Illinois Supreme Court. If she is rejected there, she'll make her arguments in federal court. If Zellner can raise reasonable doubt, if she can get a jury to wonder whether it was actually Little who did the killing, Larry Eiler could be acquitted of the murder. If he is acquitted, he will only go so far as to Indiana, where he would begin serving his 60-year sentence for the Argon murder. So when he was sent to Vermilion County, the 60 years, it's like, why would you serve 60 years after you're dead? So he went from life to possibly 60 years. But in Indiana's overcrowded penal system, Peeny. a prisoner gets two days credit for every day served. Eiler would walk free before he was 70. Oh, no. However, the sole convicted highway killer ran out of time on March 6, 1994, stricken with AIDS-related complications. Eiler died that day in the infirmary at Pontiac Correctional Center. Before his death, he confessed to 21 murders, vowing that he was joined in four of the crimes by accomplices still at large. Kathleen Zellner announced her intent to aid survivors of those victims in suing the alleged accomplice for wrongful death, but no litigation has been filed to date. Oh, so this is Zellner. It took me a number of months and many hours of meeting with Larry Eiler to, pursue, to persuade him to confess to the 21 murders. I would start by telling him what I thought had happened in each case, and he would usually stop me and say, no, 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 it actually happened this way. My goal was to plead him guilty to the 21 murders in exchange for a life rather than a death sentence. Eiler's death penalty conviction was on appeal when he died. Zellner still believes he did not murder Bridges. While those confessions provided closure for 21 families, it took a toll on Zellner, who said she never wanted to represent a guilty defendant again. I don't think he had any remorse, she said, and so that was very chilling to be around someone who was that evil. The end. The end. So, because of Larry Eiler, that's why Queen Kathleen Zellner is now in beautiful Wisconsin representing Stephen Avery. Wow. Because she said from now on, I'm only... And she's saved a lot of people's lives who are innocent and gotten them off death row or out of prison. There's a couple other high-profile ones. This is just... Um, Avery's just the most recent one. And her thing is always, if you hire me and you're guilty, you're an idiot. Because everything I find... I'm going to turn over to the prosecution. Right, like, right. And I don't right. know. And we were talking about legal stuff that she had to get permission to release all these names of Eiler's victims even after he died. I thought once you were dead, your like, attorney-client privilege kind of like went away. But she's like, no. He had to write it out saying I could still say this and he didn't really want to. And she had to be like, it was probably the right thing. Don't you think it's the right thing to do? She said she took notes from the Ted Bundy like that interviewer the guy on mm -hmm. the, all the tapes that got him to look at all his crimes from a third-party perspective. Like, you're a smart guy, Ted. What do you think happened? That's what I was thinking. He, when yeah, she, that's yeah. what she yeah. said. And she and he, like, cradled the recorder and said, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you my story. <laughs> yeah, I'll began like, the day after. That's I what Ted Bundy did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what she was asking him. She goes, here's what I think happened. So she'd start telling the story, and then he would stop her and correct her. And so that's why, like, he confessed to all 21 murders, but not the Danny Bridges one, which is the one... He was convicted on, but he also pled guilty to the other one in Vermilion County. So it's like, why wouldn't he admit to just this one? Is he just angry at his lover that got away with it and was trying to roll him under the bus? I bet he was involved. The professor guy. He needed help collecting game. I just, yeah. And Isla helped him. When you've got, I feel like such a, like a criminal serial killer that they, yeah. they don't want to take credit for anything that's not theirs. Yeah. And it's like... 
there were so many bodies, not just in a short period of time. It wasn't that long. And I don't have the dates in front of me, but it wasn't that long. And they lived together and they probably came up with ideas and sexual things they wanted to act out. And it's all bondage and knives. I've and got shit. one of those lists. What? <laughs> so, yeah, they were. Yeah, it's just really bizarre. All of it that he got away with it. I don't know if he's dead or not. I don't know. Larry, or Larry's dead. I don't know if Dr. Little is dead. Dr. Doolittle? Mm-hmm. See, now, Joe from Infamous Indie, you know, he interviews people like I, and he talked about Voiles. Mm-hmm. I want him to talk to Voiles about this case. Like he represented Dr. Little as his defense. And I want to know about that. Death. You're saying that he only gets hired when you're, you are guilty. Mm-hmm. And you want to get off. Or. When you have a lot of money. Yeah, that's yeah, okay. you gotta have a lot of money. Yeah. And like the Lauren Spear suspect, the boy suspected that some one of them or two hired Jim Voiles. Yeah, well nothing ever fucking came of that. So. No. I'm telling you, now they think that Israel Keys killed her. One person. I think so. Like that one person. <laughs> <laughs> it all and then I said his his only connection to the state of Indiana was that he flew in and out of here. His mother lived here in Indiana. His his mother lived here. And they have him here. Yeah. And when like she disappeared. when she disappeared and like the mileage on his car matches up to like he would have gone to Hoosier National Park or forest where he buried shit and then abducted her. I think it's quite plausible. I think it is quite plausible. You have to go but... listen to true crime bullshit that they lay that out. And in my mouth was just like, what the fuck? Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, at this point, so much time has gone by. And the thing is, if it is him, you don't find the people that he disposes of like no. no one they haven't found anyone except for three and that was and really they didn't even find the one couple we talked they only found the, the girl at the end so yeah i don't think we if it's him i don't think you ever find her no if it's those boys that know what happened they might say something someday you would just i know if you i don't know it seems strange to me if you had some information about your friend that you would just you know just let everybody know i don't know i'm talking about making deals i don't know so larry eiler a lot of bodies young gay men you had just what why were how far apart were him and her baumeister i think they overlapped some a little bit a little bit so but that and they did find bodies and then like that were strangled though off interstates and that was his thing well, it was not a good time to be. They also no, found the 70s a couple, and 80s, man. couple raccoons that had been painted over. <laughs> good Lord. God bless those raccoons. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not a good time to be gay no. and young. In the 70s and 80s, man, all those people. So that's my thing, though. If Ted Bundy had been gay, he would have killed gay men. Like, you know, that's my theory. I don't really have any proof. No proof. No proof, no proof but no, wild theories. speculation. I have no law degree, no psychology degree, but Kathleen Zellner is where it's at. She's impressed. She's just always like so chill in her interviews on making a murderer. She's just like, isn't that interesting? When something like doesn't make sense, she's like, isn't that interesting? And she has all these young, beautiful people. Kathleen. Yeah, it is. It is. Explain it to me. And they (laughs) recreate every detail of everything. They recreate every detail, everything she goes over. I don't know how she does it, but freeing innocent people. I'm not saying Stephen. A- yeah, I'm not saying Stephen Avery is innocent or not. I don't really know, but I think it's his brother. She wouldn't be on the case though. If she didn't think he. No, was. and that he he's gone through some advanced lie detector testing, like not just regular like 
heart monitor finger neurological they scanning up yeah and she's like and he passed the test and i think she she doesn't represent people because she's like i'll bury you if you hire me and you're guilty so i was like i will not she's like i'm gonna find out everything mm-hmm. and if i come back and you're a fucking liar i'll bury you bitch bitch love it but this is why she's there today is because she represented larry eiler scummy scummy person and she said at one point she thought about breaking uh her confidentiality agreement and telling the families because she felt so bad but she had to carry it was like three or four years she had to know all the gory details because he was going to hand it over in exchange for life with you know and so she knew it all and was like great now i just have to sit with this so as soon as he died she held a press conference i don't know if i can find audio of this and said, I'm not saying this for like publicity. I just, everyone needs I, to know. Everyone it's... needs to know. And I can't be the only and one she, anymore. She tweets now, but back then there was no tweeting. So yeah. Ooh, I'm going to follow her. Yeah. Yeah. She's cool. All right. That's all I got. All right. All right. Yeah, thank you. Up, I friends. hope you followed it all. I hope so. I like dead, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Next <laughs> time we do something like this, you should make a flow chart in advance. I know. And, yeah. Like, where's the flow the marker chart? board and write it, it out. It is. And we'll I, get like a, like a, like a headset for you so you can walk around and like show us. I mean, like a laser pointer. Like I feel like I'd follow along much easier if you, if we had a board somewhere and you wrote, all right. Here's the players. Can you just make like an interactive video next time? Yes. A slideshow. <laughs> clip just art. I need some clip art. That's it. Please go to our Patreon. We just did the first half of Jody Aries. It's all the sex tapes I could find. Oh. She asks all types of interesting questions about where Tootsie Rolls go and what cream comes out of where and why that is the way it is. And it is raunchy. And I was listening to porn in the middle of the day going, what is going on? So that's all in there. That explains a lot. That is all in there. <laughs> it's horrible. Court, naked, sex tapes, hours and hours and hours. But I cut it down so it's not as long. It's like an hour long. So a dollar a month will get you that material because they couldn't air it on HLN. They're like, can we even say the word jizz? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I, we don't know. <laughs> okay. Carla, tell Instagram, me where Twitter, Facebook. At Hoosier Homicide. Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. I think that's it. Yeah. Mostly Patreon. Oh, yeah. Like, go listen to the Patreon. I've heard good things. Dollar a month, two extra episodes. (laughs) And for honest to goodness, stay stay out out of of the the corn. corn. I'm serious. They found those bodies in cornfields. Stay out of the corn. Stay out of there. Actually, unless you're looking for one. Oh, or mushroom hunting? Yeah. Oh, weird, weird. 